Hello, everybody, and welcome to Mom of the Hard Kid. As a person who has ADHD and someone who is a parent of children who have ADHD, I keep diving down into the ADHD realm, trying to understand more about it, trying to understand how to facilitate it and use it in a way that is beneficial. And I came across an article. It's from the National Library of Medicine, the National Center for Biotechnology Information. And it is an article written by Timothy Wylands and Thomas Spencer called Understanding Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder from Childhood to Adulthood. And I found this kind of interesting because I did not know that I had ADHD when I was a kid. And I have developed into an adult, so I was really interested to see maybe what kind of similarities my children might have and all of that fun. So I'm just going to go through it and kind of talk about a few pieces that stick out. It's an incredibly long piece of information. They talk about medications. They even talk about having like regular psychotherapy, which I thought was really interesting take. I never really consider that for ADHD, but let's dive in. So the first thing they do is anytime you have a scholarly article is they give you kind of an abstract, which is the, the rundown, the summary of what they learned. And in here, they talk about how ADHD has a lot of comorbid factors. Now, when you hear the word morbid, you're like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but what it is, it's, it's essentially just a co-occurring disorder, like something that happens at the same time frequently enough that they relate them together. So they say that you can have mood disorders, substance abuse, anxiety, those kind of things are often connected to having ADHD. And when I connected that to my own life, I thought, well, I could totally see that. And while I haven't participated in any uh, substance abuse of the illegal kind, I would say that I can see how people who are constantly chasing dopamine, which is a lot of what ADHD is, um, I can see how I have things in my life that are maybe not super positive that I chase after for that dopamine. And so I can, I can totally understand. Also, when it comes to anxiety, I was watching this YouTube short yesterday. And this husband is talking about his wife. And he's kind of making fun of her, which was, I don't know, it is what it is. They have their own relationship. I'll just leave it be. But he was kind of making fun of her because <laughs> she said something about what he was thinking. And when he goes to bed and he's like, well, nothing, my brain just sort of shuts down. And she's like, nothing. And he goes, yeah, what happens in your brain? And she goes, <laughs> she essentially says, it just, if I have nothing in there, I'm singing a song. I, I, there's, there's always noise inside her head. And it was really funny to me. And I sent it to my husband because we've had these very same conversations. I cannot imagine having somebody come and just sit in my brain, like just be silent in my brain. I can't imagine not thinking about something. And when I'm not thinking about something, I'm thinking about how I'm not thinking about something. <laughs> I can't. And sometimes there was this, oh my gosh, this is, maybe I shouldn't even say it, it's so stupid. But there was this show, I think it was Blossom. 
back in the 90s and there was this brother named Joey and Joey was not very smart and he would be like oh yeah I can totally clear my mind and then he'd like stare off into the distance and I don't know if the show did this or I did this but there was like this tone like a kind of tone and when I try to clear my mind that is the tone that plays in my head (laughs) and I think of that with these poor little kids and I just cannot imagine having silence in there. Anyway, back to the article. So attention hyperactivity disorder is one of the highest neural behavioral disorders presenting in the treatment of ch- in children. But what they go on to say is that there's connections, the comorbid connections of oppositional defiant disorder, conduct disorder, mood and anxiety disorders, and cigarette and substance abuse disorders. And that one kind of stuck out to me. And I was like, isn't that interesting? But when you smoke a cigarette, there is nicotine in there. And nicotine is a stimulant. And these kids are essentially learning to self-medicate with cigarettes. Now, I am not a big fan of puffing dirty air inside my lungs, but I can understand why that would appeal to somebody. Because when you have ADHD, your mind can't focus. It's easily distracted. And when you have a stimulant such as caffeine, or I imagine nicotine, or your medications, you just sort of are able to clear up that distraction. And some medications I'm sure are more difficult than others, but it's, I never had thought about smoking being a self-medicating part of ADHD. So they talk about how over the span of a life that there are costs to having untreated ADHD. And they are pretty serious about the way that they approach this. Now, I don't really think that in my case, I had many of these issues, But it is interesting to think about the academic costs, the occupational underachievement that can happen with kids who can't focus, that turn into adults who can't focus, delinquency, motor vehicle safety, which is absolutely terrifying as my children are getting older and I'm like, oh no, (laughs) what am I going to do when you get on the road? And difficulties with personal relationships because ADHD kids... And adults tend to be more emotional than those who do not have ADHD. Anyway, it goes on to say that ADHD affects an estimated of 4 to 12% of school-aged children worldwide. Now, I feel like I read another article that had a totally different percentage. So take everything you read with a little bit of salt, a little grain of salt, and know that it could be a little different. Everybody's gathering their data somewhere, but it doesn't appear to always be from the same place. So, but it says that four to five percent of college age adults have ADHD. So, what it also goes on to say is that there, when you're in childhood, boys tend to have more ADHD than girls. But when you reach adulthood, it's fairly even, which I thought was really interesting that some kids literally grow out of their ADHD. And even if they don't, maybe their coping skills are amazing and are floating them through in a way that they can not have to worry about those other issues, um, such as the oppositional defiant or the conduct disorder or the mood disorders or things like that, where they have been able to learn coping skills 
to deal with things, but maybe also they grow out of it. We'll have to look more into that. So in the psychiatric comorbidity, they go into the mood and anxiety issues and they go into the substance use issues. So under mood and anxiety, this one was pretty interesting. So there's a section down that says a growing literature reports the co-occurrence of bipolar disorder and ADHD. So they do, they've done studies and they have found that in 57 to 98%, which is a huge gap. So again, with that grain of salt, 57 to 98% of bipolar children have ADHD. And it says rates of bipolar disorder in children with ADHD is 22%. So if you have bipolar, you most likely have ADHD. If you have ADHD, you are at high risk of having bipolar, which I just, I thought that was fascinating. It also gives a really interesting definition of what bipolar is. And when I say definition, I just mean a really loose, broad range. It talks about the difference of ADHD and how ADHD is usually um, hyperactivity and impulsivity. And those are the main features of ADHD. But when they talk about bipolar disorder, they talk about mood instability and pervasive irritability and rage, grandiosity psychosis, cyclicity, like how it cycles and the lack of a response to structure. And it's really interesting because when I pull it back to the reactive attachment disorder that my child has, my child has all of those things. And yet when I look at it and when we've talked to whatever medical professionals we have, I don't think anybody has classified her as bipolar. (laughs) And yet I would say that that definitely fits her description. Anyway, back to the article, talking about substance use. When they talk about the cigarette smoking, which was such a surprise to me, they said that it is at twice the rate. So ADHD people have twice the likelihood of becoming someone who smokes fairly frequently, as opposed to somebody who is just neurotypical. But it also says here, ADHD youth have disproportionately become involved with cigarettes, which increases the risk for subsequent alcohol and drug use. Individuals with ADHD tend to have more severe substance abuse and maintain their addictions longer compared to their non-ADHD counterparts. So isn't that interesting? When, When you think about the dopamine chase that these ADHDers have, or the fact that when they have a stimulant, it sort of focuses their mind in a way, I don't know what it would be like for someone who doesn't have ADHD. I'm like, what is going on? (laughs) What, What benefit are you getting from this? Because I can understand it through an ADHD brain to be like, oh, I imagine it helps you focus. I imagine it helps you have that dopamine that you're looking for. I imagine everyone likes a little dopamine and that might be why. But the article goes on to talk about how there is a bit of a concern at giving young children stimulants. I had to start my child on stimulant medication or on ADHD medication when she was four years old. 
Now, we did this because she'd been kicked out of a bunch of little preschools and that she was not functioning well. It was she had a very severe case of ADHD, along with all her other diagnoses of reactive attachment and things like that. And so she she wasn't able to function anywhere without some sort of medication. Now, I never thought that I would give my child medication, but I have considered that she was born with drugs in her system. She was developed with drugs in her system, and I can't help but wonder if that's going to just be her baseline, and that's going to be a place where she just is. Um, But they do bring up concerns about exposing children to stimulants when they're very young. And it says here, however, the preponderance of clinical data and consensus in the field do do not appear to support such a connection. For example, in a prospective study of ADHD girls followed into adolescence, a significant reduction in the risk for substance abuse was reported in treated compared to untreated youth. So what they're saying is if your child is on medication, the chance of them self-medicating will be much less because of course they don't, they're already medicating. So to look for additional medication and additional dopamine isn't going to be necessary because they're already medicated. So they say that there's no increase or decreased risk associated with stimulant treatment into adulthood. So that's kind of comforting when you think of giving your children these massive <laughs> medications. They're they're kind of intimidating. They were for me, but it was nice to see that that didn't really show an open door into drug abuse or substance abuse as you get older. They also go on to talking about the diagnosing of ADHD. And they say that when you look in the Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders or the DSM, they say that those are for children. So from from young to 17 years old, and that they don't really have like a separate section for adults. This is DSM-4, though. They're talking about the DSM-4, which was a while ago. But a lot of the stuff is fairly similar, where they talk about how it has to affect you at home, at work, at school, or at your job, and for more than six months. I mean, anybody that has ADHD, (laughs) it's more than six months. Um, But then they talk about how there are different types, where you have inattentive and hyperactive and the combined type. But the interesting piece of information that they have with this is that they say that the combined type is the most common type, which I'd never heard before. I had always thought the hyperactivity part was the more popular. I don't know why I thought that. But they said that the combined is not only more prevalent, but it has the highest likelihood of comorbidity. So having those oppositional defiance or other things connected with it if they have the combined type. And it says, quote, of interest, the combined type of ADHD may simply represent a more severe and debilitating presentation of ADHD, for example, more symptoms, and there may be relatively more stability of a subtype with development. And I just thought, oh my gosh. (laughs) And (laughs) because I have the combined type, (laughs) so I didn't realize that maybe mine was more severe than I thought. I, I I functioned. I was fine. But that was 
kind of a new piece of information. There are a lot of really interesting facts in this article, just things that you as parents should probably be aware of. They talk about how sometimes ADHD is overreported and how sometimes as people, they did a study and they said 176 people who were diagnosed with ADHD as children were then re-diagnosed or re-evaluated at 25 for their behaviors when they were younger and found out that only about 28% of them actually had childhood ADHD. So it can be over-reported. But when you are being evaluated for ADHD as a child, your caregivers will be given a worksheet to go through and they'll be evaluated. So sometimes you have a really hyperactive kid who just is hyperactive and they're not necessarily ADHD. I think that's why a lot of kids grow out of this. But they, if you are ever curious, they have something called the Adult Self-Report Scale. Um, it's from, I believe, the World Health Organization. Yep. And it is a international diagnostic interview. And you go and you take this paper, the mom fills it out, you take it to the teacher, the teacher fills it out. And if you have a, a nanny, you take it to the nanny and the nanny fills it out. You just get it from as many people as constantly have contact for with your child. And, and then you evaluate how severe the ADHD is. And when my child was being evaluated for this, <laughs> they're like, is there a higher number that we can put here? Because we need a higher number for her. But she, again, isn't just ADHD. She's got a lot of mental health issues because of neglect when she was a baby. But one of the most optimistic points of the article comes up next when they talk about how long ADHD tends to last. And they did studies or they reviewed these studies that show that ADHD tends to be grown out of about 50% of the time. And that it does appear that the intensity of the hyperactivity and the impulsivity slow down and become less intense, even if you continue having the symptoms. So that is something for all you parents out there who are like frazzled out of your mind at your four-year-old, your five-year-old, your six-year-old, your seven-year-old, that maybe by the time they're 16, you won't be having some of these issues because they use the term decay, but the behaviors decay over time. A good portion of the article talks about the neurobiology of ADHD, which if you are interested, I recommend going and reading it, but I'm not going to get into it at this time. But it essentially talks about how there are genetic factors involved. And if you have one family member who has ADHD, it's very common that it's somewhere else along the line of your family tree. It talks about specific genes and the reasons that they're Um, targeted. So it's different things such as neurotransmission and serotonin, which we've kind of addressed at some point, you know, the whole specifics of the thing. It kind of goes over my head, but I don't think that it's not worth looking into and trying to learn to wrap your head around it, because I think it will help you understand your child just a little bit more. The rest of the article goes on about treatments, talking about psychological treatments. So I did not even think, I talked about this at the beginning, I didn't think about therapy 
traditional therapy, which is something that they've recommended in the article. They talk about tutors who help keep your child on task, but they also talk about the emotional regulation issues that can be so beneficial just from having therapy. And I thought, oh, well, I am willing to consider that because to be able to talk through your emotions, I think is a really great way to process your emotions. And so I'm all for that. And then they go on to talk more about stimulant medication and non-stimulant medication, which there's so much information here, you guys, but it's, if you want, they have like this table of different ADHD medications inside the article. And you can see about the different medications that your child has. It talks about the dose, the schedule, the uh, typical dosing schedule and different adverse effects from those medications. So that can be really interesting if you look up the type of medication your child is on, or even if you're thinking about medication and you're like, hey, I'm just going to look and see. I don't really love all of these side effects. I mean, some of them are insomnia, which it's like, whoa. (laughs) Sometimes as parents of ADHD children, we're just like, no, I need that kid to go to bed. But another one is... um, dry mouth. And it's like, oh, that sounds terrible, but, but maybe that's not as terrible as something else. So you can evaluate those things, have that knowledge, maybe even print out the table. If you're going to go talk to your psychiatrist or your pediatrician about what medications are best, ultimately it's going to depend on how your child reacts to each of these medications, but at least it's a good starting point. Anyway, this article is full of good information. And one of my favorite things about scholarly articles is that they have citations and they will lead you to more information and you can just fill up your brain with tons of stuff on your child's condition. Anyway, we are going to end it right there. Thank you so much for joining me.